Today, we are going to continue where we left off in um, the 19th chapter of uh, Genesis. And um, I, it kind of defines, you know, sometimes you've, you've heard the phrase, hail, fire, and brimstone, right? And it kind of gives you this kind of, this kind of uh, visual, right? Like, you know, one of those. Like uh, we need, like with the, you know, the hair flaming going back and, you know, gives us a whole idea there. But, but that's not what it really is. It's really like in the text uh, right here. And uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to look again at Sodom and Gomorrah because I, uh, later on in the Bible and in, uh, in the writings of the rabbis, in the New Covenant, I, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is a very, uh, are, uh, the event is very prevalent uh, later on, depicting judgment, right? Uh, and so we're going to sort of fa- see, where the, uh, see where the text leads us. Now, where we left off last time was uh, right there where uh, they're running away uh, here in chapter 19, uh, and um, Lot's wife turns back, and uh, you know, now when it says she became a pillar of salt, I don't think it's exactly as Cecil B. DeMille depicted it as like a big lump of salt, you, you, you know what I mean? That she pr- most likely became encased by this sulfur. She she just became, you know, uh, it, it enveloped her up and, and she suffocated and died in it, you know. I, um, um, uh, however, I, it is interesting that you do read uh, later on, like in Josephus. In fact, uh, let me see, I think I even have a little, a little thing he wrote. Yes. Here, let me just read this paragraph about Lot's wife uh, turning into a pillar of salt. One cannot judge from the verb whether Lot's wife became a pillar of salt instantaneously or subsequently or afterwards. The narrator certainly depicts her as a person who, in pausing to look back, was stopped, trapped, and overcome by a sulfur cloud, either suddenly or gradually. The existence of, of the salty marl at the southwest end of the Dead Sea that forms odd-shaped hillocks in the salt cliffs of the area, more than likely provided the inspiration for what we read in uh, some of the extra-biblical material, like in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 10 and verse 7, uh, where it says, And where monument to an unbelieving soul there stands a pillar of salt. And in Josephus, Lot's wife changed into pillar of salt, for I have seen it, and it remains at this day. So Josephus is very interesting because he was um, uh, someone who um, was at the end of the uh, first century, you know, and beginning of the second century. So that's just kind of interesting. Uh, And people do claim, you know, that when you go uh, to the Dead Sea, that you see this uh, sulfur and that it uh, and it's different from uh, the rest of the terrain. Around, so it's very, very, very interesting. All right, uh, but then the passage, uh, you know, continues here uh, in verse, and this is where we left off in verse twenty-seven. So 
you know, the city is destroyed, Lot uh, and his family are secure, uh, and, and, but except for his wife, who uh, turns into a pillar of salt. And then suddenly Abraham appears. It's kind of interesting. Now, in verse 27, Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, Abraham, this brings us back to chapter 18, right? When Abraham uh, had this discussion with God, if there's any righteous people, will you uh, spare the city? And so Abraham now sees that uh, probably from his vantage point, there was no one righteous. He may not even realize that Lot is spared. We, we don't know that. You know, we just see him looking out over the city and just seeing... Uh, the the demise of uh, of uh, of Sodom, okay. And he looked. Uh, and, oh, then in verse uh, twenty nine, then it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, uh, and he overthrew the city, uh, the cities in which Lot lived. And Lot went up from Zor and stayed in the mountains. And his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zor, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of earth. So, you know, they saw the, the destruction uh, and uh, recognized, wow, there may be no one left anywhere. And so we will be barren for the rest of our lives. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with, their fa with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn, uh, and the firstborn bore a son, and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she bore a son, and called his name Ben Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So we see here, perhaps uh, something that Lot and his daughters have in common. We could say that old phrase, the end doesn't justify the means. You know, uh, a lot was trying to show hospitality to these men. Although, remember what we said last time, that Lot should not have been there in the first place. Should never have gone to Sodom. And by going there, it's not going to end well, you know. 
uh, you end up trying to make the best of a bad situation. And what we see, it turns into a total train wreck. Right? So the daughters, of course, in that culture, the daughters realize, wow, we'll be barren. That is like a death sentence. You know, we'll never have a man. We'll, we'll never uh, have uh, children. We'll never, have this, we'll never be blessed by God. So what do they do? The only man available is our father. Let's get him drunk, have sex with him, and then we'll have children, right? Not wise, right? Uh, how many sins can we name in all of that, right? So, but it tells us the culture in which they were living in, how far away they were from walking in the derech Adonai, the way of the Lord, in which they were all raised, you know, at least uh, a lot, traveling with Abraham and, and all of that. This is miles away from uh, the, the way of life that God wanted for his people. They were acting just like the people in Sodom. They were acting uh, very much uh, full of uh, debauchery. And what happens? Uh, they become, that. what happens, to their, who does their children become? Enemies of the Jewish people, Right? The Moabites and the Ammonites, right? And what is interesting is here that uh, evidently the last couple of verses uh, came a little bit later, right? Telling us that, well, you know, you, know, you want to know where the Moabites come from? You want to know where the Ammonites come from? This is where they come from. And so we see that all the way through Genesis, these bad choices lead to generational problems for years to come of, uh, you know, the, the Ishmaelites and the, you know, the, the Moabites and the, and the Ammonites and, uh, and, uh, and how sad it is. But what is amazing here in all of this is the faithfulness of God, right? Uh, and, and of course, it, after this event, you never hear from about Lot anymore. Only, only in retrospect. But Lot exits the stage. We don't read about him anymore. We can infer all kinds of things from that. Probably the most basic one is he's just not part of the story anymore. You know, he, he doesn't play a role in the, in the future history of the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, how sad, you know, when you compare Abraham and Lot, Lot becomes really a pathetic figure in so many ways. Uh, and we see what happens to him in his old age. Yes, he ends up being the father of more children, but they're pagan and, and, you know, uh, and the opposite of what the chosen people are supposed to be. And so how sad is the story of Lot. How, even though he's saved, his skin is saved, but sadly, uh, you know, there are repercussions for the rest of his life and the life of uh, and the life of his children. So the whole episode of Sodom and Gomorrah is a terribly sad, uh, pathetic tragedy, uh, and this does not go without notice throughout the rest of Jewish history, because even the prophets uh, use Sodom uh, as a depiction of debauchery and the judgment of God. And in both uh, Isaiah, mostly in Isaiah and Ezekiel, 
And you know what's interesting about that is if you know your prophets, and by the way, uh, you can get to know all these prophets uh, this coming term at MSI, okay? Uh, so uh, Isaiah, he wrote, relatively speaking, early, okay? And Ezekiel uh, wrote very late. Ezekiel actually goes into the captivity. So they're hundreds of years apart, uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. Even though I know that when you read them, you get the idea that they were like standing in line, you know? Here comes one, now the next one, now the next one. But, you know, they, they, take, they go from about 800 uh, or seven, yeah, between 750 and 800 uh, down to 600. That's hundreds of years, right? Okay, so Isaiah talks about Sodom and Ezekiel talks about Sodom. So in Isaiah chapter 1, we'll look at that one. You can turn on your own later on to uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, okay? I would give the Ezekiel chapter 16 depiction of Sodom somewhere between a PG and an R, okay? Just so you know. All right, the Bible is pretty colorful in depicting judgment, let me tell you. Okay, but in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, 7 to 10, gives us a little bit of the context here. Your land, now, now here he is speaking to the Jewish people, right? Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, they're in the land, but they're full of sin. And uh, he is, I mean, he just, he pulls no punches, as we say. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. We could stop there. So these are like the, these are the feasts. These are the holidays. And they're bringing the offerings, and they're seemingly doing what they're supposed to do. But God says, I hate it. It's an abomination to me. Because God is not that interesting in performance. God is interested in what comes from the heart. And right here in Isaiah, it's quite clear. And so he's referring to Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, as Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, uh, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. So he takes this event in uh, Genesis, this debauchery, and he says, look, this is what you're like. This is what you're like. 
Now, you know, you could, if you took this out of its context, you could say, boy, he, uh, he really must have hated uh, the Jewish people. This, this God must have hated these people. Look at the way he's talking to them. He's not saying, I love you here. You know, he's not saying, uh, you know, you're wonderful and God bless you and, uh, and everything else. No. But we know, if, first of all, it's a given when we know, oh, this is in the prophets of Israel. Oh, so, so therefore, uh, he is, he's just reproving them when that's right. He is. His goal is that they would repent. His desire is repentance. And so he, he tries to pierce their heart by identifying them with this horrible place. Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh my, are we like Sodom and Gomorrah? Whoa. God wanted them to look into their hearts because everybody in Isaiah's day, everybody knows Sodom and Gomorrah is an evil place. No one would ever want to be identified with them. And so again, in Ezekiel, it's prevalent, and a few other places in the prophets. So then when we come to another prophet, when we come to the new covenant, Yeshua functions in his life, in his, in his uh, teaching, uh, as, a, uh, as a prophet. And so we read a few different passages that sound very similar to this kind of thing. For example, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 10. And you may be familiar with these passages as you read the Scriptures. We don't always pause and look at them all. But in uh, Matthew chapter 10, in verse, uh, uh, well, 12, 13, 14, and 15. This is when Yeshua is sending out the disciples on like a training mission, right? And he tells them to go to people's homes. And give them a blessing of peace. However, if they don't receive you, it's not so good. And so he says, beginning in verse 12, As you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house, or that city, shake the dust off your feet, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And so here, Yeshua, just like Isaiah and just like Ezekiel, I, I takes Sodom and Gomorrah and says, if you reject me, if, if they're rejecting you, they're rejecting me. If they're rejecting me, they're rejecting the Hashem, the God of Israel, the God of Ezekiel, the God of Isaiah, the God of Moses. And indeed, it will be worse for that place than Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, now, if perchance the hearers here are familiar, uh, the disciples are familiar with Isaiah and Ezekiel, they understand themselves to be in this prophetic role, because this is exactly what Isaiah said and exactly what Ezekiel uh, said. Then if we go to the, just to the next chapter, in verses uh, 20 to 24, then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Now these are cities 
along the Sea of Galilee in the, in, you know, in the northern part of Israel. Uh, today it's called the Canaret, right? Uh, and uh, some of these places are identifiable, some of them are not. All right. Woe to you, Chorazin, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, that, that's a pretty tough, that's a tough one, because Tyre and Sidon, right? They're in Lebanon, all right? And uh, by the way, it kind of reminds me, we won't turn here, but in the fourth chapter of Luke, when uh, Yeshua is in Nazareth and at, a, at the hometown synagogue, uh, they love him, you know? And he says, oh, you know what? The day is going to come uh, when you're not going to be loving me, you know? Uh, uh, and it'll be just like the days of Elijah. And then he talks about healings and things that were done in, uh, in these pagan cities uh, and, uh, and not in Israel. So here... He compares these pagan cities to these uh, cities in the Galilee. <clears throat> then he says, Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. But he saves, he saves the real uh, right hook here for Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is in a different category than these other cities. The other cities, Yeshua did miracles. But Capernaum, this was headquarters. This was where Yeshua spent a lot of his time and did a lot of miracles in Capernaum, okay? This is during the time of his ministry. This was basically where he lived a majority of that time. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, to death. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, we might say to ourselves, those are harsh, uh, you know, those are harsh words. But the fact of the matter is, is this is exactly what the prophets have always said. And here, the point here is, is Yeshua himself is the promised one. And to reject him is rejecting uh, the God of Israel. Now, you know, I've been uh, doing some teaching from Acts chapter uh, 2 and 3. And it is very interesting. Uh, in chapter 3, uh, Peter is explaining how Yeshua is, uh, is the Messiah, okay? And I just thought I'd read a little tiny part of, of this. First, I guess, well, I don't know. Uh, let's just read uh, verses 22 to 26. So he's preaching this to the Jewish people. He says, Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up a prophet for you, like me from your brethren, to him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers 
saying, Abraham, and in you, your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So he is clearly uh, saying to Israel, this Yeshua, now, it, when, you read these, uh, when you read these chapters, Peter, he repeats himself in a number of ways. He continually says this, for example, this Yeshua, whom you, whom you sent to his death, lives, okay? Now, he's not saying whom you sent to his death to, to simply, like, send them under the ground, but to make the point that he lives, he's alive, right? And he is the Messiah. That's why uh, throughout this, uh, he will refer to Yeshua as Yeshua the Messiah, right? So, you know, in your basic English Bible, uh, you see the words Jesus and then the word Christ, right? The reason I'm saying that like that is so that you know that Christ is not his last name. And there's no middle initial H either, okay? All right. So, for example, if you go back to chapter 2, in verse 38, because that's what, you know, I know we all have that, but I think way down deep inside, we just think that's his name. But it's not. The first word is his name. The second word is he's the Messiah. And this was huge for those people to hear. Okay? So in like Acts 2.38, when he says, And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be immersed in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins. Whoa! The Messiah! And he uses that phrase over and over again to make that point. He is the Messiah of Israel. To reject the Messiah of Israel is to reject the God of Israel. It's not just like some piece of theology that I uh, will not agree with. I, I, it, it's, it, it, it is tantamount to saying God is not true if we reject his Messiah. Look, what does he say about rejecting his word? I'm giving you today a choice, right? Life and death, blessing and curse. And he's referring about a way of life. And the reason the way of life God gives is true because it is God's way of life for his people. If we reject Torah, we are rejecting God. And we would never say, certainly as Jewish people, oh, we reject the Torah. People interpreted all kinds of... We would never say we reject the Torah because in the Bible, rejecting the Torah is rejecting God. That is exactly the same feeling of Hashem about Yeshua. He is the Word made flesh. And so it is not a case of, I really, you know, I, I, everything is good here except Yeshua. You know, he is the center of attention. He is the one whom the, throughout all the ages God has promised. That is what Peter is preaching here. And so receive the one whom God has promised. Don't miss the boat. He is the one whom God has indeed promised. You know, back in Isaiah 53, you have this great confessional prayer. It's really what it is. It's a confessional prayer of Israel. And I've said this before, and I will say it again, that when you read the beginning of it carefully, look at what the confession is of Israel. It's like a prophetic confession. This is what we'll say in the day of Messiah. Uh, let's see. Uh, beginning in verse 3. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. He was despised and we thought very little of him. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried, but this was our attitude toward him. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought he was suffering for his own sins. No, it was for our sins that he suffered. In other words, what these verses are saying here is, we totally misunderstood who he is, you see? And it reminds us of that passage in Zechariah, they shall recognize him whom they have pierced. It's really him, you know? Now, you know, if you're a Jewish person here, you grew up Jewish and you've received the Messiah, we have kind of like the same story, just different characters in it, right? Like growing up, you know, this is not the God of Israel. This is the God of the Gentiles. We have God who needs Jesus, right? And then, wham, the Ruach gets a hold of us through the word being shared with us. And then we realize he really is the Messiah. And so when you go back here to Matthew chapter 10 and 11, what Yeshua desires is exactly what Isaiah desired in uh, chapter 1, that the people would repent, that they would realize, don't be like Sodom, don't be like Gomorrah, see? But this is not the only place. If we turn to Luke in chapter 17, in Luke 17, uh, beginning in verse 28, okay, well, uh, you know me, let's go back to the beginning of the Bible and just read the whole thing. <laughs> Okay, okay. So verse 26, verse 26. And, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also as in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now here in 28. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. And they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling. They were planting, they were building, they would get up every morning, they would go to work, they would come home from work, they would do their daily uh, routine, their, you know, and life just keeps going on, and uh, uh, perpetually we just live out our lives. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed on that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down and take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life shall preserve it. Interesting here, Luke is not stressing how horrible Sodom is. Uh, you know, in Gomorrah, Sodom. He doesn't, he's not talking about the debauchery here, a little different than, um, a little different nuance than Matthew. Matthew's talking about, you know, how, how evil they, they are and don't be like that. But here, what uh, Luke is um, uh, using Sodom and Gomorrah for 
is he's stressing the routineness of life when the judgment comes. He's not stressing the sinfulness, but rather routineness. Like in our day, right? People don't see how it really is, right? But the judgment will come. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit. Remember the movie The Matrix, right? And, uh, and how everybody was, uh, uh, they thought they were living well and going on. But, but the reality is there was this dark, dark reality that needed to be uncovered. And so, uh, you know, in our world, yes, we might look around and say, yeah, things are bad. But most people uh, are not concerned uh, about uh, uh, their accountability to God. In fact, many of us may not be concerned about our accountability uh, 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 to God. And life is just about, you know, the, the ins and outs uh, of, uh, of, uh, of life. What uh, Luke is talking about is having a lackadaisical attitude. See? Now, while it, it may be true that, uh, you know, uh, uh, we, we may not be thinking about the, the end time of the return of the Lord, it, it may seem like something uh, very far away to us. Now, as Messiah followers, hopefully, you know, we have an assurance of knowing the Lord, yet we're still called uh, to be uh, living, you, you know, uh, a life of, uh, of a godliness and holiness. But boy, it's, but, if, but if we're not quite sure about Yeshua, and we're not thinking about that, that uh, the very end of the end, hopefully at least we realize this, that we may be living in denial, but you know what? We're all going to die. <laughs> anyway, we're all going to die at some point, right? And the scriptures are clear that we live once and we die once, and that's it. Then there is a, a judgment. And so we may uh, not, maybe we don't even believe in an end, uh, end of the end, but I hope we don't believe that we're just going to live forever because we're, we're not. And whether we believe it or not, there will be a day when we stand indeed before God. And that is what Luke is talking about here uh, and how important it is to uh, recognize that the world will face a judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question is, where do we stand in that? See, uh, And, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, these uh, terrible wildfires and floods in California. You know, uh, if you've ever been there, uh, especially in the areas that were this time around very hard hit by both the, the fires and the floods, People live in denial where people live on the side of hills, live on the side of mountains. And this is like exquisite property. This, you and I could never live there. We'd be stuck somewhere in the middle of the San Fernando Valley, believe me, okay? <laughs> we would never be, uh, you know, in those hills above Santa Barbara and all of that. People live in denial, live for the moment, and that is how most people live, right? I'm excited about soon it'll be spring, maybe. I'm excited about the summertime. I'm excited about the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited about my uh, visiting my kids. I'm excited about, you know, uh, retiring, or I'm excited about, 
making money. I'm excited about all these things. But you know, all of this is like being on a treadmill. And it's not all horrible. You know, God has given us a world to live in, to enjoy, and, and all of that. However, it's all worthless if we are not right with God. See? And, uh, and, that's, what you, um, and, and that's, what you have, that's what you have here. You know, it's interesting. When you go to the Dead Sea today, people go to the Dead Sea like a resort, right? You know, with the mud and the Dead Sea and all that. Uh, and, and so it's, it's rather interesting. Uh, and, uh, and the fact is, is that it seems that in the days of Lot and Abraham, it was actually a beautiful land. That's what we read about in the 13th chapter of Genesis. Remember, Lot chose to go there. It looked good, you know. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so that's how he was living, living, you know, this looks good. I think I'll choose that. We need to live intentionally. And, and, and we need to certainly consider the claims of Yeshua, embrace Yeshua. What did, uh, what did Yeshua himself say? He said, if you believe Moses, you would also believe me. The reason that so many people reject Yeshua is only because of a tradition of rejecting Yeshua and not really investigating the claims of the Messiah. And uh, uh, very, very important. Because we may think that, oh, you know... Uh, things will get better, things will get worse, but the day is indeed coming when we will have an appointment uh, with a God. All right? Uh, and you know, it's interesting, Luke uh, seemed to like these kinds of passages. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he says, uh, for example, in the 14th chapter, he uses really, uh, he quotes Yeshua using uh, very um, seemingly harsh language in talking about what it means to follow him, you know? Uh, here, he says this. If anyone comes to me, in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit down first and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to uh, uh, complete it? So the, the point is, what he's saying here, he's not, telling, he's not telling people to hate their parents, okay? He's speaking rhetorically, getting their, you know, getting their uh, attention that uh, we must be devoted to God and devoted to the cause of Messiah. It's quite interesting, and you can read on your own in Mark chapter 7, where Yeshua chastises the leadership for not taking care of their parents, okay? So Yeshua is all about taking care of your parents, loving your family, and, and all that. What he's saying here is, count the cost of being my follower. You know, and there's other passages where he talks about don't turn back, and, and all of that, see? Uh, and uh, as we learned in the last two Wednesday nights, that in that death to self is the favor of God, is indeed in, in many different ways the favor of God, and certainly in the assurance of the very presence of God in our hearts and in our lives, and that uh, God is, uh, you know, using us and the and the, uh, to be a light in the midst of darkness and the assurance of being with him forever and, and all of that, right? So very important, this issue. 
of being devoted to the Lord. But nevertheless, uh, uh, you know, we as Messiah followers, I guess I should say this, more than anyone else should not be lackadaisical, should not just be going through the motions, even going through the motions as believers, like going to the service, you know, I read this, I went to this, went to that service, all right, it's all good, you know, that is, he calls us uh, to live intentionally for him, right? Very important. It's all part of this, don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah. All right. Okay, very quickly, uh, in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, in verses uh, 6 to 8, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example see, to those who would live ungodly thereafter, that is how they understood this. Okay, as an example to all who live ungodly thereafter. Okay, and if he rescued, now isn't it interesting here? And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Okay, why does he do this? Why does he call Lot righteous? Peter is basing what he's writing here on, on uh, literature, on Jewish literature, that uh, uses, uses Sodom and Gomorrah as the epitome of evil and destruction and uses Lot as the example of God-saving unworthy people. And so even in, uh, after this, in, uh, you know, in uh, the rabbinic literature, you have, you have, whether, no matter how Lot is actually uh, seen in the text in Genesis, he becomes the poster child, one might say, of being uh, saved from the destruction. See? Uh, and uh, so he's called, in that literature, righteous Lot. All right? So what is interesting here is that uh, this great word that based on uh, what we see there, that uh, uh, God uh, does uh, deliver uh, a people out of the judgment, right? But if you look at the context of, of this, those uh, who are righteous uh, uh, know the Messiah. Those who are righteous, how could you be righteous after the coming of Yeshua and reject the Messiah of Israel and be righteous. You can't be. You can't reject God and be righteous. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and so this is a word about false teachers being judged, but those who are righteous being spared. But the point is, he uses, again, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, as, uh, as an example. And then there are, there's just two other places, and I'm just going to mention them for the sake of time. One is in Jude 7. That's verse 7, right? Okay? Uh, and, uh, you know, the sinfulness of the city is compared to false teachers. False teachers are those who deny Yeshua. False teachers are people who say Yeshua is not the incarnation of God. 
Yeshua, you know, how many times have we been told? <laughs> how many times have we been told? You know, you guys could attract a lot more people if you just didn't hold to that idea that Yeshua is the very incarnation of God. Well, thank you very much. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and that is when it says false prophets, you know, in verse, uh, in 2 Peter anyway, false prophets also rose among the people, so on and so forth, false teachers. Same thing in Jude, sort of making the same point. Uh, and then uh, you also have in Revelation chapter 11, about the two witnesses and being killed, Sodom, right? A place of judgment, a place of judgment. And so, uh, for us, just like, uh, you know, we read in uh, Isaiah, just, well, like we read in Genesis, like we read in Isaiah, like we read in Ezekiel, in the Tanakh, as Yeshua basically uh, reiterates, uh, that uh, God means business. And we can dilly-dally around and wonder about this and that, but I encourage us all today to take the claims of Yeshua seriously. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Messiah of the Jewish people and the world. Trusting in Yeshua is not jumping ship, okay? Trusting in Yeshua is being secure on the boat, all right? Uh, in fact, uh, it's too late now, but if you go back to that Acts 3 passage when Peter is preaching, he says, return, come back to the God of Israel. Return, repent to the God of our fathers. That is what Yeshua does for us. And so when we reject him, again, we're rejecting the Torah. We're rejecting Moses. We're rejecting the whole message. We're really rejecting our calling as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So may we not be like Sodom and Gomorrah. May we embrace the Messiah of Israel. And as Messiah followers, may we live intentionally for the Messiah. And may we recognize uh, you know, our a calling and that there is indeed a day of reckoning and accountability. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you, God, that you've given us the story of Sodom and Gomorrah so that we can just like be woken up, you know, and, and recognize that, that the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking on our own lives. The clock is ticking in the history of this world. Lord, thank you, God, that you have always had a remnant You've never given up on your people. And thank you, God, that in the sending of Yeshua, you have not given up on your people. Even to this day, even though Yeshua has been marginalized so much by our community and by this world, that he still says, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Thank you, Lord, that you still weep over Jerusalem. You still desire that we come to you. Thank you, Lord, that your patience is infinite. Thank you, Lord, that you don't give up on us. So, Lord, I pray that we would indeed embrace you, know you, live for you. God, just as we read in the Shema, you know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our very being, may we indeed love you. And we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.